Good morning, everyone. Morning, those to those joining us online. Um, it is a blessing to worship together and to sing praises to our glorious God. So thanks, team. Uh, and it's like a team can't do it alone. And the, the powerful people of this world, they don't do things alone either. You think about the kings and how, how they had their advisors around them and uh, generals to command their armies and heralds to convey laws to subjects and rulers that would collect taxes and quash rebellions. And they entrusted their security to bodyguards and to walls and moats and uh, secret rooms and protections. And like there was a lot that helped the king act as a king. They had servants that prepared their food and tailored their clothes and washed them and even helped dress them. Like they were surrounded by people helping out. And it's like God sent his son Jesus to be the savior of the world. And he came as a man and he faced everything without the benefits of a monarchy, without money, without uh, an army to command or uh, political power or layers of security. He came as a child. And then he went throughout Israel and he faced the enemies and the arguments head on himself. He didn't have his generals go deal with it. He answered those questions. And only a handful of people saw him for who he was. He was like incognito to most of Israel, but to those who saw him, they realized he was the Son of God. He is the Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us. And it's awesome that God himself came and he defeated his enemies with his wisdom. And we'll see that today. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, for your truth, and that we can come to you as a sovereign God, as the creation, the creator of all things, and, and as your created beings. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have sent your son to be our savior, and that you have made us part of the body of Jesus, the one who did everything. He could have done everything by himself, but he's chosen to use us and to adopt us and to bring us into the kingdom of God. For this, we are so grateful, Lord, and we praise you. You are almighty, sovereign, and good, and you have sought us sinners out, and you have made a place for us, and you have plans that include us, and we are so grateful and thankful to know you and to follow you. Thank you for opening our eyes, for delivering us from sin, and for giving us exceedingly great and precious promises in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 20. And the, the uh, context for where we are is Jesus is about a week or so before his crucifixion. He's teaching in the temple. He preached the gospel. And religious rulers, they had questioned Jesus about his authority, like, who gave you this authority? And who gave you authority to do these things and to say these things? And in answering that, he told a parable about some wicked vine dressers. And the Pharisees and rulers knew that he had spoken against them. And they wanted to lay hands on Jesus, but he had such attentive admirers that they realized, like, we can't do anything to Jesus publicly because he has such a following. He's so famous. Um, but they sought to erode confidence in him. They viewed him as a nobody and a deceiver. And they hoped to be able to report him to the, the Roman authorities. Think about kings, how if there was an opposition, they could silence their enemies by incarcerating them or by executing them. But Jesus silenced them with wisdom. 
that they asked him a question and he, he answered them with wisdom and instructed the people at the same time. And this is a, really a cool passage. Starting in verse 20 of Luke 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, the gospel accounts in Matthew and Mark uh, identify they who watch Jesus as the Pharisees and Herodians. And right away, it's very odd that these two groups would work together for anything because they were quite opposed to each other in their doctrine and philosophy. But so great was their hatred of Jesus, they joined together to try to overthrow him. Now, a Pharisee, that's someone, the word signifies someone who separates themselves from impurity. The idea is they would be separate from sin, they would walk according to the law to have communion with God. And they held to the Torah, but also the oral law. So the, the traditions handed down from the elders. And they really were the ones who, um, they taught the people what, how they were to live. And they oversaw their lifestyle they, uh, they relegated the customs and the behavior of people, saying what's lawful and what's unlawful. And as God's people, they, they saw Roman rule as intolerable because they believed they should have a king. And they were looking for a Messiah, uh, a Messiah who would deliver them from Rome. However, the Herodians, they were a group of Jews who supported Herod's rule. They, they saw Roman rule as the last hope of retaining a sense of national government. So they were happy with, with having the temple. Remember that the Romans had helped expand the Temple Mount. They were being catered to, to a degree. And so they said, hey, this is a way that we can have a sort of autonomy. We have the protection of Rome. This is beneficial to keep this relationship going. And that, you couldn't really find two groups more at odds with each other, but they, they both had their agendas, and getting rid of Jesus helped both of them, where they could... Uh, attain their self-serving ends. So they were cynical toward Jesus. They tried to undermine him at every turn. But before they could deliver Jesus to the power and authority of the governor, they needed an accusation to stick. They needed something that they could say, well, he was stirring up the people. So they come to him with these contrived arguments after buttering him up with some flattery. They go, teacher, we know that you speak the truth. Ironic, because they didn't believe him. They didn't follow him. And then they say, you don't show personal favoritism, but you teach the word of God in truth, the way of God in truth. It's like Jesus, he's the Messiah, the son of God. Who is Moses and Herod compared to him? Like he is altogether glorious. And uh, it shows us that those who employ flattery are not to be trusted because their motive behind their compliments is insincere. And then they drop a bomb on him. So they butter him up, and then they go, all right, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Very controversial subject, right? Taxes, uh, paying taxes to Caesar, that was uh, very frowned upon by the Jews. Um, they were not in favor of paying taxes to Caesar, who oppressed them, who had his armies living among them, who occupied them, and they weren't asking his opinion. Like, what do you think? They said, is it lawful? So they're asking him a legal question. And, and it pitted the Romans against the Jews because 
what's the law of Rome compared to the law of God? Who is greater than Caesar? Is, is God greater than Caesar? Of course, his, God's word should stand over Caesar's word. So if Jesus said it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, they could accuse him of being loyal to the Romans and he would lose the respect of the people because what kind of king of the Jews would Jesus be if he was content to be under the Roman boot, right? If he is willing to, to serve Rome, then he's no Messiah, he's no deliverer. But if he said it's unlawful to pay taxes to Caesar, well, now they had a case before the Romans. They could accuse him of sedition amongst the people, telling them, oh, we're not supposed to pay taxes, and then they could arrest him. Now, another way to ask this question is, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? So you see how loaded the question is? Because we know, based upon biblical morality, there are things that are legal that are not right before God. Like in New South Wales, for instance, a, a married man can legally use the services of a brothel, but we know that's not right in the sight of God. So it's a very loaded question they're asking. You have the secular Roman law clashing with the law of Moses, and answering the question with either yes or no, it would mean disaster for Jesus. It's good to follow, follow Jesus in not falling for follow Jesus to not fall for this polarizing A or B trap. Quite often we can get, I think we live in a very polarized world where it is either A or B. There's no in-between, either for me or against me type thing. But Jesus doesn't fall for that. He addresses the heart of the questioner rather than just answering the yes or no question because they've already pigeonholed you, whoever's asking it, as either this or that with no in-between. Luke 20, verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Jesus being God, he knows the heart of people. He knows their motives. And the, the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, it records Jesus saying, why do you tempt me, you hypocrites? So he knew. He like called them out in front of everyone. Like, this is hypocrisy. Why are you doing this? Uh, and then he says, whose Im image and inscription is on a denarius? Show me. And they go, well, it's Caesar's. It, it's basic observation. Undeniable. And then Jesus says, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Caesar's image and inscription were on the coin because it was minted and dispersed by Caesar's authority. It was only fitting that money received from Caesar could be taxed by Caesar. And this in no way trampled on man's obligation to honor God and to glorify him because man has been created in the image of God. And so we are to render our lives as a living sacrifice unto him. We should render him the obedience and worship that he deserves. Believers are exhorted in 1 Peter 2.17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. In the fear of God, we can honor rulers because when Peter wrote this, who was king? Caesar. And so he says, fear God, honor the king. Not just a Jewish king, but a Roman king. 
that people didn't even believe should be on the throne and ruling over them. Romans 13, 7 and 8, it says, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Love how the wisdom of God just disarmed the snare. It was like they set a trap for him, and Jesus just broke the spring, and so it had no power. And uh, there was nothing to worry about, and, and they had no answer for him. They tried to catch him, but they were caught in their own craftiness and hypocrisy. They were exposed in the eyes of the people. And interactions like this, it only increased Jesus' rapport and respect in the eyes of the people. Even the spies marveled and were silent. They're like, whoa, how did he get out of that one? Like, we, we really worked to trap him. And in one sentence, he disarmed us, he exploited uh, our weaknesses, and he taught a, an immortal lesson. Render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. I love that Jesus, he's the light of the world. And sometimes we can be caught up in the, the concept of a spiritual battle, which is true. But what kind of battle is it between light and darkness when light comes into a dark place? Is it a fight? Is it a struggle for light to overcome darkness? No, there's no pushing back of the light against darkness, like who's going to win? Light, by its very nature, it, it just dispels darkness instantly. It just disappears. And that is the power of God over the, the mightiest forces of the enemy. The powers of darkness flee before the powerful God who has created all things. I like what it says when we talk about rendering unto God what is God's. Psalm 116, verse 12 through 14. It says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. We should never have a, what has God done for me lately view with God? Because he's given us everything. Every blessing and good thing we have is from God. And we ought to credit him for it and acknowledge his goodness toward us. And he says, I should receive the salvation that God has offered me. The cup of salvation, I'm going to receive that. I'm going to drink deeply of that. We ought to receive his salvation. We should call upon his name. We should keep our word. He says, I'm going to pay my vows in the presence of his people, publicly declare that Jesus is our Savior and our God, to acknowledge him as our king. So to use our words to edify and not to tear down, to praise and thank God rather than to gossip or murmur or complain or lie. So our lives, it can be a public display of God's glory and goodness because the Holy Spirit lives in us. The light of the world has come and shined into the dark areas of our hearts, exposed our sin, and now we get to shine for him. And it's like that, that city on a hill cannot be hid. And when the light of God dwells within you through the Holy Spirit, he will shine forth. But we should render that service to him intentionally, knowing that he is worthy of that. Luke 20, starting in verse 27. Then some of the Sadducees, who denied that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. 
And the second took her as a wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. The Herodians and the Pharisees, they have failed to trip up Jesus and trap him. Now the Sadducees take their shot. That was a Jewish sect opposite the Pharisees. They only accepted the first five books of the Torah. They denied the uh, oral traditions that the Pharisees held dear. They denied, so they said this, the first five books of our Bible they saw as divinely inspired, but they denied that there's angels or demons or a resurrection. We see that in Acts 23, verse 8. They didn't believe in the afterlife, the immortality of the soul, that there would be some punished with eternal damnation uh, for their sin or others who received rewards. They, they really had no hope of life beyond this world. And I read in the Jewish Encyclopedia this. I thought it summed it up really well. It says, representing the nobility, power, and wealth they had centered their interests in political life, of which they were the chief rulers. Instead of sharing the messianic hopes of the Pharisees who committed the future into the hand of God, they took the people's destiny into their own hands, fighting or negotiating with the heathen Nathans just as they thought best, while having as their aim their own temporary welfare and worldly success. So we can see that the Sadducees have, have survived to this day. I think that's how a lot of people live, with their own sense of morality and living the best for themselves now. And they were willing to compromise with the Romans to maintain their wealth and their rule. And so they were quite distinct from the Pharisees. So they come down with this contrived dilemma with the aim to show how foolish it was to believe in the resurrection. They were insincere. They had no plans of abandoning their doctrine. They, they weren't asking because they really wanted to know. They were just trying to make Jesus look stupid. Um, they failed, thankfully. The story, it's this extreme example of uh, how do you say that? The liverate marriage. Yes, liverate marriage. In Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, there's a married man who dies child. She, he dies and she is childless. His brother was to take her as wife to raise a male heir. And that ensured that the, the land that was passed down, the inheritance, would stay within the family. And that line would be preserved. Now, in this hypothetical situation, this woman married seven brothers. They all passed away before she had a child. And they say, in the resurrection, whose wife will she become? Verse 30, and Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for we all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Jesus refused to answer the question because it was based on a faulty premise. I like how Matthew twenty two twenty nine it prefaces the response of Jesus. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. 
You will be mistaken. You will err if you do not know the power of God or the scriptures. This reality of the resurrection, it was not overthrown because they didn't understand it, because it didn't make sense to them. They erred by their ignorance of scripture and the power of God. I mean, the God who breathed uh, a soul into a man formed from the dust of the ground, isn't he able to give, the one who gave a physical body, can't he give a spiritual body to those he seems, it seems fit to him? He's able to raise the dead to life? Of course, because he spoke the life into nothing, right? There was nothing, and then he said, let there be light, and there was light, and he breathed into man a living soul. And he explained how it's a fallacy to assume the life after the resurrection should be at all patterned to our life here on earth, to limit how life in heaven will be according to our understanding now. And it's easy to fall into that trap, to, to limit the glory of heaven and what will occur there as to our limited understanding now. There's religions that promise a, a multitude of wives in paradise, a fantasy playing upon sinful lust, not the word of God. Cartoons, they show people with halos and wings on the edge of clouds with harps, looking rather bored and sad because they're looking down on the earth and all the fun they could be having that they're not having. Have you seen those pictures? Where you go, that's heaven. And you go, why would I want to go there? It doesn't look very exciting or interesting at all. Like, what do you do there? I believe the eternal state is really out of our realm of comprehension. And therefore, the Bible doesn't go into great detail about it. We know it exists. We are told some things, like Jesus does here. But can you imagine, if you were able to enter the womb and communicate with an unborn child about what the world is like that they have never seen, like what it would be like to see what colors are, or to feel what the wind is like, or to eat food, and the kid's thinking, why do I need to eat? That just... And, and how would life be without an umbilical cord? Like, toys? What's the point? I'm content here. I'm safe here. Why should I go anywhere else? They would have, and even if they could imagine what life would be like, they have no experience to base it upon. They, it would just be guesswork, and it would be far from the reality. They have no understanding, no context. Eternity, it's way bigger than our brains. God is is infinitely greater than what we can imagine. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work God does from beginning to end. So we can know God, we can know there is eternity, but exactly how it all works and what, because we say our daily activities, well, it will always be day. And, and there won't be any passage of time because it's eternity. So our framework for understanding the timeline and geography and, and purpose and locations, and that all goes out the window because we're now in an eternal state without boundaries uh, in service of our king in the new heavens and new earth that will cause the, the memory of the others to fade away completely and not be remembered nor come into mind, it says in Isaiah. Jesus explains, on earth it is customary to marry, to be given in marriage, but this will change in the eternal state. 
that angels, they don't marry, they don't procreate. All believers who are married now will be unmarried and glorified in heaven. After the death of our physical body, we'll be given a spiritual body like unto Jesus, who he ate. He did not need to eat to live, but he ate to show that he was indeed not a spirit, and he was flesh and bone, but incorruptible and immortal. We'll be equal to the angels in that regard, that we will be ageless and immortal, but we'll have a connection with God the angels do not, because they are not called the sons of God. We will be the children of God, the sons and daughters of God, and children of the resurrection. And God's not going to give us away in marriage. He's not going to say, all right, it's time to leave your father and join yourself to your wife. No, he has purchased us with the blood of Jesus. He's paid the bride price for the church, and now we'll be part of his body, right? The church where he is the head. It's like he doesn't, Jesus was autonomous without us, and yet he brings us in as part of his body to serve him and to be with him forever, to be used by him, to have a purpose in heaven. On earth through marriage, God joins a man or a woman together as one flesh, but we are joined as one with Jesus now. And Jesus prayed that that would be in John 17, 20 through 23, before his crucifixion and resurrection, he prayed that we would be one, one in Jesus and the Father through the Holy Spirit. And so we'll be joined to him as one. Marriage is just a shadow of what the eternal relationship will be that we have with Jesus even now. It, that's a shadow of it. That's not the apex. That's not the, the best. The relationship with God, that is the ultimate. That's why we say, till death do us part, when we have marriage vows, at least the more traditional marriage vows, right? I think even for us who believe, who, who believe in the gospel and that we will spend forever with him as his children, it's quite unthinkable that we could be one with God who is altogether unapproachable in glory, who is awesome and, and mighty, that he would bring us to himself, sinners as we are. Jesus goes to a passage of the Torah. So he comes to their level. He speaks to something they would understand and believe with to these unbelieving Sadducees that Moses, who they claim to revere and follow, revealed that God is the God of the living. So the resurrection is a reality. He quoted from Exodus 3, 6, and 7, which tells us the words that God spoke from the burning bush. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. When a person passes away, we speak of them in the past tense because they are no longer present. Years ago, investigators involving a missing child case uh, became immediately suspicious when one of the suspects referred to a victim or the missing person in the past tense. And they go, whoa, that's, that's weird. Why would they be mentioning this person's name in the past tense? God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the father of, the, I am the God of Abraham. Because the eternal souls of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were in the presence of God. They were alive. So their bodies had died, but he was still their God because they were alive. And this is such wisdom of God. He used this familiar passage 
to teach something that I had never thought about before. And uh, because Jesus is God and the author of Scripture, we can trust his interpretation implicitly, that there is a resurrection. And so the, the Sadducees, like the Pharisees, they had no answer to Jesus. The scribes who believed in the resurrection said, Teacher, you have spoken well. Yeah, that's good. But they didn't have any questions to ask. Uh, they didn't dare question him anymore. It's interesting to me that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes, they were groups of people who believed they were on the side of God's truth, yet they questioned Jesus to find fault with him. I wonder, do we dare to question God, to find fault with what he has done or what he has allowed? Questioning God's wisdom and sovereignty, it's not necessarily said with a question mark at the end. It can be through complaining, through murmuring, through disputes. We see that with the children of Israel. They murmured because of the food that God was giving in the wilderness. They murmured against Moses. And, and God said, they have despised me who am in their midst. So they said, we hate the food. And God's like, you know, Moses, it's not about you. It's because they're rejecting me. They despise me. God knew their hearts. He had that insight that I would just have to make a, a pretty much a blind judgment call, but God knew. It's good for us to consider our words, but to look beneath the surface of why we question, why we worry, complain, or dispute. And praise the Lord, even though our motives may be in the dark to us, God's light brightly shines there, and he shows us the truth about ourselves and our need to repent, and that when we complain about something, we're, we're, we're speaking against him. To a degree, there's unbelief. There's a rejection of God that's occurring. So may he show us our need. Uh, Luke 20, verse 41, And he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Having answered all their questions, now Jesus has a question of his own. In the Matthew account, Jesus asked the Pharisees, he said, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? And they responded, the son of David. So this picks up after that. It's established that the Messiah is the son of David. So turn to the passage that Jesus quoted from, Psalm 110. The scribes and Pharisees were very familiar with this passage, but we might not be, or we might be familiar with just one part of it. But as we read through that psalm, we will see it establishes that the Messiah will be the son of David and that he will conquer and rule. Okay, so this is their understanding of the whole passage. Psalm 110, starting in verse 1. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. 
He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink by the brook of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. So the Lord Yahweh said to David's Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. And this Lord at the right hand, he was a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who was king of Salem and also a high priest. Now, Jerusalem, the king of Salem, he is the king of peace. And that the Messiah at the right hand, where it says in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. So this is the Lord at the right hand of God who will judge the nations. And it seems a contradiction for King David to call his son Lord, because the Lord would always be the older one. Uh, but he does so by the leading of the Holy Spirit. He calls his son Lord. Matthew Henry, he writes this, They could not reconcile this seeming contradiction. Thanks be to God, we can, that Christ as God was David's Lord, but Christ as man was David's son. So that's the answer. Jesus is the answer to the conundrum because God had told him that he would have a king that would come from him, that would have an eternal kingdom. The Messiah must be the son of David. He is also the divine son of God. We read this in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. He's the root and the offspring. He's the one who, and you think about a tree, how could that be? That the roots could, and, and be the fruit, be both at the same time? How is that possible? Well, Jesus, God, he knit David together in the womb. He chose him to be king over Israel. And Jesus was sent by the Father to, later in his line to be the savior of the world. I asked a Jew about this once in, uh, in Israel, about this question. I, I posed Jesus' question to him, and he just looked at me with a wry smile. He said, everyone makes mistakes. <laughs> okay. I wasn't expecting that. Like, I make mistakes. Jesus doesn't make mistakes. David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, did not make a mistake when he said this, that the Messiah must be the son of David. It has to be proven he could come through the Davidic line, but also the son of God, divine. And many Jews today don't believe that the Messiah needs to be divine. He will be the son of a man, and then we'll have descendants after him. But the Bible teaches the Messiah, the son of David, the son of God, God in the flesh. Now, Melchizedek, he is a very interesting character, and I wanted to bring him into the picture, not a bad character, um, but a person in the Old Testament that we have this one passage where Abram has won this stunning battle, and Melchizedek comes to greet him. It's the only mention until this passage in Psalm 110. So the background is, uh, Lot has been taken captive. There were four nations that came against five kings and routed them, and Abram heard that Lot, his nephew, was taken. So Abraham, Abram, Abram, who became Abraham, went with 318 of his servants by night and defeated these four nations. 318 people, and Abram went and defeated them. And the distance they traveled was about 225 Ks from Hebron, which is around the Dead Sea, all the way to Dan, the northernmost part of Israel. 
So after they defeated the enemies, God uh, delivered them into their hand. This is what it says in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. The king of peace and high priest, which is something that never happened under the law of Moses, kings were not priests because kings was of the line of Judah and priests came from the line of Levi. But he is both king and priest and he brings him what? Bread and wine, the elements used in the Last Supper. Abram recognized the greatness of Melchizedek. He says he gave him tithes of all. God had delivered his enemies into his hand. Now, because we're short on time, I am not going to go into Hebrews 7, but I, I really urge you to write that down, to check out Hebrews 7, because the author shows that Melchizedek was, he was a great man. There was really no one in Scripture like him um, who had no father or mother, who was high priest and king of God, and how Jesus was greater being the son of God. That Melchizedek came before the law, and Jesus and the law could not make perfect, and Jesus came after, to, after the law was given to fulfill the law and to start a new covenant in his own blood. And as Psalm 110 says, that God swore to make the Messiah a priest forever. And Levites, they could only be priests so long because they would pass away. But Jesus, because he lives forever, he has an unchanging priesthood. He li- he's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. So I love that connection, again, to Psalm 110, that he's at the right hand. He is a God of justice. He's a God of power. He's almighty, and he, we know him. So if you could turn to Hebrews 7, starting in verse 24, we'll see what it says of Jesus and what he is able to do. Hebrews 7, starting in verse 24. Hebrews 7, 24. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself." Jesus came to to this world to save sinners. And today, he's able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through him. So through faith in Christ, we enter into that relationship with God and we receive that cup of salvation. Jesus' resurrection, it shows that that offering was acceptable to God because he lives and is risen. And we have a Savior who is with us. He won't leave or forsake us. And sometimes we feel under attack. We feel like we need to fight uh, God's battles, but realize the battle is the Lord's. He's the one who can disarm his enemies with a word, 
who can hold forth the wisdom from a coin and, and show that, and, and from one passage in Scripture, and show that the resurrection is real. And, and there's no answering that. Melchizedek, he came with bread and wine. Jesus came to give his own body as a sacrifice, his body that would be broken, his blood that would be poured out. Abram, he gave Melchizedek tithes of all that he received because he realized God had given him the victory. And shouldn't we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to Jesus because of all he has accomplished for us and how he has blessed us so richly? He's the Prince of Peace. He's made us one with God. And we have this eternal future to look forward to, a resurrection and a life to be lived with him. It's just glorious. Let, may, may the cares and troubles of this life not blind us or distract us from the reality that we have in Jesus and the future and the hope that we have, the salvation that we can receive and walk in. So let's be those who call upon his name, who keep our word, because our Messiah Jesus, he's at the right hand of the Father, ready to save, and he is at hand. So praise God for his goodness to us all. What a Savior we have. And uh, it, as a disciple of Jesus, I'm just sitting back and loving watching him work, watching him just disarm the traps, watching him evade the intrigue, and just to, to show forth his glory. And may that be us too. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the wisdom of Jesus and that he has become wisdom for us. Lord, may we take that cup of salvation. If we have not been born again, Lord, I pray that we would be converted. We would be washed clean as we trust in him, as we rely upon Jesus Christ for salvation. Thank you that he is able to save to the uttermost all who come to him through faith and that we have a hope in heaven that's secure with you forever. And, and this life, Lord, it bears just a minute resemblance to the life that you have in store for us. And I pray we would keep that in mind, Father, that we would not be deterred or distracted by things of this world, but we would seek Christ. We would seek to love you and to glorify you and to praise you and thank you that you are at hand, that you are not far from us and your arm is not shortened that it cannot save, but you hear our prayers and you answer and the light drives the darkness away. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus as the light of the world and that you make no mistakes. Lord, we praise you for, for receiving us to yourself by grace through faith, and may we promote you and live for you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.